0: Girls5Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a Hammond Swiss, Chipotle Chicken Wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal, simple,
1: delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal, only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only, price and participation vary, terms apply.
0: Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 292nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the top young figures in the world of late-night comedy, Josh Gondelman. He's a stand-up comedian and humor writer who, in 2012, co-created the Modern Seinfeld Twitter account, which became a viral sensation, won the Best Parody Account Shorty Award, and catapulted him onto the staff of HBO's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, which was just getting off the ground, and where he initially focused on interactive programming and then became a full-fledged writer. He and his fellow Last Week Tonight writers won Peabody Awards in 2014 and 2017, were nominated for and won the Best Comedy slash Variety Talk Series Writers Guild of America Award in 2017, 2018, and 2019, and were nominated for the Best Writing for Variety Series Emmy in 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019, winning in 2016, 2017, and 2018. We'll find out about 2019 on September 22nd. Earlier this year, he surprised a lot of people by leaving that show to take a job with Showtime's new late-night talk series, Desus and Mero, where he is both a writer and supervising producer. He's been busy with plenty of other stuff as well, including his third comedy album, Dancing on a Weeknight, and his second book, this one a collection of humorous essays entitled Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Gil Robertson, the president of the African-American Film Critics Association, which will be presenting on Monday its first ever TV honors. They've been doing film honors for a decade, but this is the first time with TV. And Gil, thank you for coming in. Thank you, Scott. It's uh, a treat to have you here because you split your time between here and Atlanta. Probably so far, mostly in Atlanta, but now we're going to be getting you back in L.A. more.
2: Yes. As we move into closer to the fall, we move into my season to be in L.A. and to, you know, do what we do during award season.
0: Well, tell me a little bit or tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. It's a fascinating story of just sort of coming from this town And winding up on the other side of the country, but in between, there have been a number of books that you've authored, a lot of great journalism, and then starting this important organization.
2: Oh, wow. Well, yeah, I'm an L.A. native, grew up here, grew up going to movies, you know, developing a fascination for things Hollywood, and always enjoyed writing. And so even as a kid, I would write plays, I would write short stories, and you know, I just cultivated that, and you know, it was just something that I was that I enjoyed. And after college, I began working for a political think tank in Santa Monica, and decided that I had reached a ceiling there, and decided that what I really wanted to do was to write, was to write books, wow. and not specifically about showbiz. Not at all. Okay. Not at that point, not at all. And um, figured the best way for me to gain entree into the publishing community was by developing a byline that they would recognize Mm -hmm. and so I set about growing a career as a freelance journalist Mm -hmm. and so then you come into the challenge of getting your first clip Mm -hmm. because of course at that time in LA this was a zillion years ago (laughs) uh, you had newsstands that populated that were around the city and you had two big ones in Hollywood you had one in the Valley on Laurel Canyon you had a big one on Robertson and so I would you know go to the newsstands and pick out magazines that I thought I would be a good fit for reach out to those editors and they would say oh send us your clips mm-hmm. and so I explained to them well you know I just graduated college I've been working for the last year and I don't have any clips mm-hmm. you know but I do know how to write yeah. and so they were like well you know when you get clips send them back to us and we can talk And so I ended up going over to the L.A. Sentinel, which is the oldest black newspaper in the city, and they had a list of black newspapers from around the country. And so I called every single one of them, and this is back when, this is so long ago that you actually paid for long-distance phone (laughs) calls. And happened upon an editor named Tim Butler at the Tri-State Defender in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. And Tim said, hey, you know, I said, look, I can get you first-person interviews with celebrities. And he was like, oh, okay, well, you know, send them my way and we'll publish them. Now, what made you think you could do that at that point? You know what? I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> I just figured that if I, I've always been pretty persuasive yeah. and, you know, I've never lacked confidence. And so I just figured that I could. And sure enough, I called around and, I remember one of the first interviews I did was on the rooftop of the Le Montrose with this guy who was on EMI Records. Mm -hmm. And that gave me my first clip. I sent it around to all of the different editors, borrowed some money from my dad, flew to New York, met with some editors, and got assignments. And
0: how did film become your particular focus?
2: Well, initially when I started, I was writing about music. Mm -hmm. And I... I've never been, I mean, at that point, rap was sort of taking over the music, the urban music scene, and I'm not a rap person. And I didn't want to be locked into a box because black most black writers at that time were pretty much limited to being music writers, specifically writing about rap music. And since it wasn't a passion, I sought a window of opportunity to write about TV and film And so I just went for it. And that was, how many years would you say now? Oh, dear Jesus. (laughs) Um, 20, well over 20.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I want to ask you about is what, you know, we talk about these days inclusion in a lot of different fields. When you were starting out 20 plus years ago, that was not a conversation most people were having and probably particularly in media circles, it's still bad in media circles. So I wonder for you... What I mean, the fact you mentioned black newspapers, people don't even necessarily know that there were such a thing. I mean, and I, th- I know about the ones in Pittsburgh and certain cities were famous for being great, but they existed for what reason?
2: For a purpose to cover news happening in the black or African-American community that wasn't being covered by mainstream outlets. And so they were a important tool to inform people, to educate them about the things that were happening, not only in their community but other black communities around the country.
0: And so, in your experience now, you you know, you come along and as you started freelancing at different places, were you seeing other people that looked like you? No. Not at all? No. And is that demoralizing or motivating or what would
2: you describe that as? You know. It just was what it was. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. And, you know, when you grow up in this country as a black person, some things just don't surprise you. You just don't let it stop you. You understand what it's likely to look like, and you just accept it. What can you do about it? But make the most of it.
0: Well, you did more than that because it was 16 years ago that you founded this organization, the African American Film Critics Association. And I wonder why what was your mission and how did it grow to what it's become
2: well Afka, the, the story is true about how Afka started I, we were on a junket i was had made it to a junket journalist meaning i was one of a small very small group of i guess you would call us elite journalists mm-hmm. we're pretty special mm-hmm. who every weekend you're flying to new york you're going to London. I mean, it's it's something out of a, out of a movie, yeah. in fact. You're staying in fancy hotels with the per diem, and it was a very inclusive environment, and uh, the number of journalists of color, of any color, was also very always small. But within that group, specifically talking about the black journalists, there were certain concerns about access to talent, and access to films that could create opportunities that would allow them to grow their careers. And so, as the story goes, one after we were at the Regency Hotel on Park, 61st and Park, one of my favorite properties in yeah, Manhattan. Yeah. And I was outside smoking a cigarette and I see this black guy walking towards me and I couldn't see who it was at, initially. And then I noticed it was Sean Edwards. (laughs) And so, and there are not a lot of black men walking down Park Avenue at 61st, (laughs) I can assure you. And so Sean walks up to me and he goes, man, blah, 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 blah. We got to do something. Because he's a fellow journalist. Right. He's on the circuit too. About the the 10 of us who were on the circuit nationwide. that was your first time meeting him? No, we had met previously. We knew each other. Yeah. But he lived in Kansas City and I lived here at the time. I was based here full time. And so, you know, me always being the organizer, the activist type, I was like, we need to organize. And I wasn't having a lot of the problems that a lot of the other journalists were having because I've always managed my career very differently than some. What were sort of the problems they were running into? Well, they were running into problems dealing with access. Mm -hmm. You think because of race? A lot of it certainly was because of race. Mm Uh, some of it was because of, of uh, they weren't really doing relationship building properly. And what I did when I first started is every quarter, literally every quarter, I would send out clip packages. And this is when you had to do this all by mail. Yeah. So I would go and make copies at my own expense with a cover letter and send them out. Hey, this is what you're paying for. This is, you know, understanding day one that there was value. Yeah. You know, this is not playtime. They need to see what they're getting for your efforts and for their efforts. So when you founded AFCA, how
0: many members were there? I think there were about 7 or 8 of us. And from all around the country. Yes. And the I guess about 6 years into the organization existing, you decided as I don't know, as a group or you personally that it might be a good thing to give out your own awards. Well, like many were- critics
2: groups do. Yes, yes. There was always the idea to give out to, you know, the fantasy was, oh, one day we'll have an award show. And all of us were totally locked in boxes identifying strictly as journalists. So how we would go about doing that, we had no clue whatsoever. (laughs) Quick, another famous story. Yeah, please. I had become an author by then. My second book had come out and it had been picked as a pick of the week from Publishers Weekly, which is a really heavy thing for if you're an author. And so at that point, I had begun to sort of back away from AFCA, thinking that instead I would be an author, and I would be doing academic things, and I'm not going to cover things like frivolous things like (laughs) Hollywood. And I had really sort of taken that whole position. And we had another president. I had relinquished my role as president. We had another president who, quite frankly, a Wilson Morales, who loves film and is probably I have a deep appreciation for his passion for yep. cinema. Yep. And Ava called me. I was at Whole Foods.
0: Well, let's just say this is Ava DuVernay before anyone knew who Ava DuVernay was, <laughs> right. right?
2: Right. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was at Whole Foods shopping. I was in front of the meat counter, more than likely buying lamb. <laughs> and uh, the phone rings and it's Ava. And she's like, hey, I'm working this project, Invictus. And I have a promotional budget And I know you guys have always wanted to do, like, an event around your top ten lists. She was like, you know, so if we can tie it in and it makes sense, you know, I can, you know, provide you with some sponsorship. I just want to interject because some people may not
0: know, before becoming a successful filmmaker, she was a publicist. So that's how
2: she, you knew her first as a publicist. Right, right. Okay, so she's going to help you out with. Some, some seed money, some sponsorship money so that we can do an event that originally was envisioned as let's take over Le Dome, the bar. Yeah. Or let's take over STK or some swanky restaurant with a bar. You know, grab Sean Robinson or Kevin Frazier, high profile black journalists, hand out some awards, do some trade passes, have some drinks and get the hell out of it. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was how it was originally supposed to be. And you were going to have some talent show up? Yeah, handed out to talent. Such as? Well, that first year, well, it, 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 that didn't happen. Oh, it didn't happen, okay. So I said, I don't want to do it. I was like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm a, I'm an author now, <laughs> and I'm going to pursue, you know, things that authors do. Right. By the time I got to checkout, I was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> because Ava talked you into it? Yes. Okay. And so about a week later, I got a phone call, and I know I'm talking too long. That's long, but we'll, quite all right from uh, Ren Brown, who runs the Ebony Repertory Theater in Los Angeles, in South Central, in Washington and La Brea. And I think has been invited to the Academy, right? Oh, I'm pretty sure, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And so Wren uh, says to me, hey, I hear you're doing this event, and I want to support. I'll give you the, uh, the theater. Yeah. So in that moment, it went from being this mixer with awards being passed out to something else. A big thing. And And so for the last 10 years... It has
0: grown and grown to the point where I believe this past year, your primary big winner was Black Panther. Yes. And many other awards aside from Best Picture are given out. But it's a you you talk about just quickly list, if you will, some of the big names who have come to your awards to accept
2: their honors in person over the years. Oh, God. Uh, Ava DuVernay, of course, Jordan Peele, Barry Jenkins. John David Washington, Francis McDermott, J.K. Simmons, Quincy Jones, Jason Bloom, Catherine Bigelow, Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, it's really, it's grown into an yeah, amazing thing. Uh, star-studded. I mean, it's it's sometimes you're like, wow.
0: It must be like a pinch-me thing to think yeah. where it started. But I guess in the course of the decade that, that those awards have been given out, you've sort of timed it very interestingly because at the same time, there has been this... At first, you know, controversy called Oscar so white, and now all of the things that have come as a result of it, and it's made people in town really rethink a lot of things, and I think in a lot of ways things are, it seems to me, I'm not really the person to comment, but it seems like they might be getting better in in some regards, maybe not in others. I guess I just wonder, you know, you've had a, a fascinating seat to that because of your own experience because of your relationship with Ava, who's been very front and center as her film career took off. And I wonder just what, you know, what you think the state of race relations in a way are today in Hollywood.
2: You know, I mean, to your point, I think it's certainly gotten a lot better. There's still a long way to go. I think that technology has certainly opened the door for anyone to who has the talent and the ability to be able to move into this space. And if, if their work is good enough, if they're able to attract an audience, if they're able to generate the type of revenue that this town is looking for, you know, they can land a spot at the seed. Yeah, I at, guess at money talks. Yeah, Money always talks. So what was it that made you say, I guess pretty recently, we've had a decade of film awards, let's venture into TV as well? Well, you know, probably about five years ago, uh, we started... TV categories, because TV was starting to really pop. Yeah, It made sense. The uh, activity in television and in streaming had just grown to a point where, I mean, it deserved acknowledgement. And so we did. Last year, we started talking about, we felt that those two areas were healthy enough for us to build a standalone event. And that's how Africa TV Honors was born. And TV maybe even more than film is uh, inclusive medium, right? I mean, they
0: seem to be whether and not just in terms of race, but in terms of gender. We've got things like Pose, which I believe is why you're giving a special award this year to Ryan Murphy. You've got things of all, just sort of every imaginable form of diversity is available in TV because there's so much TV. But how would you compare the the situation in TV to film today?
2: Well, I think it comes down to the cost of investment, and clearly, you know, for the most part, you can pull together a television show a lot less expensively than you would a motion picture, and it's also, you're also able to reach a larger audience, obviously, if you have something on television versus in a theater. One of the cool things about AFCA is that you guys, unlike a lot of film critics
0: groups that only pop up during the award season, you guys are doing stuff all year round, can you talk about some of the stuff that keeps you busy on top of your writing throughout the year?
2: Absolutely. Every quarter, Afca produces three events. With we produce a community event, we produce an academic event, and we produce an event with the film festival. And so, you know, from TIFF to Sundance, Howard University to the University of Georgia to USC, you know, we're always involved with educating people about the value of cinema, and the purpose of film critics, and how the two work together. And so it's something that we're extremely proud of, you know, the programming, our chance to, you know, touch the communities, and to just provide them with information, entertainment, and uh, hopefully a growth experience. So we'll
0: just tell our listeners on August 11th, this coming Sunday, there are going to be 10 awards given out at the California Yacht Club in Marina Del Rey. Four of them are going to Ava's great Netflix limited series When They See Us, which has won Best Limited Series, Best Ensemble, Best Writing, and Best Breakthrough Performance for its star Jarell Jerome. There's also Best Drama for Power, the show on Stars, Best Comedy for CBS's The Neighborhood, Best Female Performance Angela Bassett on Fox's 911, Best Male Performance, Sterling K. Brown on NBC's This Is Us. And then those special awards that I mentioned, the Inclusion Award for CBS and the Icon Award for Ryan Murphy. And before we close, I just want to say, Gil, that I have so appreciated getting to know you. And you and Sean and the group are doing such great work. And I really appreciate how kind you guys have been to me. There have been things where, you know, I'm not African-American, and yet you have included me at events of yours, and, and I aim to do the same because you're just great guys and do important stuff. So thank you for that, and thank you for coming in today.
2: Thank you so much, Scott, for the opportunity. We appreciate it. Absolutely. And now for my conversation with Josh Gondelman. Josh Gondelman,
0: thank you so much for joining me. It's This one I feel is unique and special because... I guess maybe you can, can I leave it to you to set the scene? Where
1: did we first cross paths? So we went to Brandeis together and we, I mean, I don't know if we first met, but we worked on the Sundice Festival together, the Brandeis Short Film Festival. And so we've known each other for a very long time. Yeah. And
0: I think you were always close with like Sarah Bryn Mm -hmm. and people, and I think were, were we in... Mark
1: Feeney's class together. You remember that was know. like arts criticism
0: or something. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm complaining it, so. but. but I think
1: we've, we probably had some, class some classes. Yeah. It's like such a small place. And I told Sarah, I was doing Did this you? and she oh, was just cool. really psyched. Yeah. yeah. I just like love, I'm such a, not nostalgist for like cultural institutions, yes. but I just like have so much joy and pride in like, staying connected with people from school and from you you know high school and and childhood and so it just brings me so much joy to get to like have professional collaborations and interactions with people and it's just like i feel a great sense of like we're all doing it. absolutely well
0: not all of us are doing it at the level you've been doing it at so we'll go through all of that Uh, on this podcast we just kind of do it chronologically so some of this that i'm going to ask you is a lot of it is before i knew you and then what's happened since so let's start
1: with just the basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do? So I long? grew up in Stoneham, Massachusetts, which is Nancy Kerrigan's hometown. Okay. Yep. Uh, a lot of Kerrigan pride, yes. which made I, Tanya a very fraught experience. <laughs> my parents – I brought up because my, my wife had watched – we got the screener, and my yeah. wife had watched it and, and liked it, and – I was talking to my parents and said, Oh, would you, have you seen it? Yeah. And are you interested in seeing it? And they, they were like, well, no, like we can't do that out of loyalty to Nancy (laughs) Kerrigan. And my mom worked in education in various capacities. She was the director of a small private school. She worked with a nonprofit that administrated and kind of helped. I believe they worked with at home daycare providers to like make sure their licensure was up to date and like as a, as a resource for them. And my dad was a glazer, which is, um, it's installation of like glass storefronts. Mostly okay. there's all different kinds of glaze, you know, yeah. there's auto glass and whatnot. They did mostly East storefronts. And so when we would drive, it's still to this day, yeah. we'll drive through Boston when I'm visiting family. Uh, my dad will go, oh, I, I did that. Did that that's, that's still the legal seafoods yeah. I did or whatever. You know
0: what? It's funny. My
1: dad was with a roofing business. Mm-hmm. So it's similar thing. You'll be around and you'll see like that. We did that one. We did that one. I don't mean to sound crass, but it's always nice to hear about other construction Jews. Yes. <laughs> So, all right, so what kind of a
0: kid were you? I listened to some other podcasts you've done. I read a lot of stuff. I I, I think there was one thing I came across where you said that a friend's mother started calling you Screech or
1: something. Yeah, 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 <laughs> when I was, like, 13, 14. I was kind of, like, just a sweet dweeb. Yeah. That was, like, I was, like, a good student, and I played sports but wasn't very good at them, which is kind of, like, my – I mean, I had, like, big curly hair when I was, like – probably like 14 to 16, which is just a mistake. Like I feel like I spent the last of my hair years just like in an inadvisable zone and I should have just kept it looking nice for pictures. It was just kind of like a, a misguided attempt at an Afro. And it was just the worst. So that was one of my screechiest qualities. Yes. A screech from saved by the bell, but not like a, but you were, it sounds
0: like though, like a, you know, I guess this applied to screech too, but like a well, like, it's not like you were uh Isolated no, because of yeah. so
1: that's the thing I mean the thing about Screech that yeah. people Don't I think I wrote more about this In my book than ended up in the Final yes. copy because I have a lot of thoughts About Screech one is that he was not An outcast But The other thing is he insisted on hanging out with people who didn't like him that much. (laughs) And that kind of, as an adult, that's such a bummer because like, it felt like there were places he could have fit in better with people that would have been like less derisive of him and his interests and his personality. But he insisted on, and you know, they, they weren't like malicious. Zach and the gang weren't malicious towards him. That I think is a quality that I did not have. I think I like found People that I liked, I did a lot of theater in high school, yes. and I found people that I liked and spent time with them, as opposed to, like, there was, like, a time, it wasn't, like, when I was playing sports, either, that I didn't get along with the people The people I played with, it's just, like, I did not have the aptitude, and so it phased out for that reason, rather than, like oh, they made fun of me for being right, a nerd. And it's right. like, oh no, I just was a nerd and we got along fine. But then there was no reason for me to keep playing basketball at, at like five, <laughs> nine and a half. Well, so
0: did your sense of humor emerge as a, I find it interesting just talking to different funny people that for some people it was a maybe a defense mechanism for sure. other people. When did it first manifest itself?
1: It started very early yeah. and I don't, it must've been, apart from my parents because there's like a video of me somewhere at age like two and a half telling this long (laughs) set up punchline, like street joke to my great aunt who was maybe like in her fifties at the time. And I'm telling her this long joke and I get distracted by a bug. And I think my dad kind of goes, Hey, and I focus up and I finish (laughs) the joke. So it's like, I've always liked communicating that way. There definitely is. I think like a self deprecating, strain in some of my work but I prefer to think of it less as like putting myself down than being self-aware and being like this is how I'm presenting to you but here are the kind of multitudinous other things that I can bring right. to the table because I think like just self-deprecation because I don't know I've been working in comedy and writing long enough that I don't and my life is very good so I don't feel bad about right, myself right, right, you know what right. I mean I don't get up on stage or sit down to write and go like man, I really suck. And I better tell people about it. (laughs) So I think there is a strain of that where like, when I was a kid, I was much more ostentatious about kind of like presenting myself in a way that's like, I get it. Like when I played basketball, I had the big Drew Carey (laughs) plastic black frame glasses. Yeah. 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 And then I had, instead of getting like sensible basketball shoes, I had like the Adidas superstars from the eighties, which are like, ostensibly basketball shoes, but like their technology is, <laughs> right. you know, wildly right. updated even for the early aughts when I was still playing sports at all. And so I just kind of wanted to present like, look, I I know what I'm doing here. And I think there's <laughs> less of that now. Like right. I think I have as an adult a much more grounded sense of like I know who I am. Yeah, and I, I know like my, own skin, yeah, yeah. And also like a little it's still fun to like make fun of my demeanor and appearance yeah, in yeah, contrast yeah. with like Jesus and Mara, yes. who, who are my bosses are very, they like are very fun about yes. that too, about the kind of contrast between, you know, their demeanor on TV and like me writing for them well, and like being say, in, like, the, in the, watching
0: the show, who yeah. would ever
1: imagine, you mm-hmm. know, a nice white Jewish boy Boston. from Boston. Yeah. yeah. Like you've been to a taping. There's yeah. a lot of like interaction and with them, And some of the staff members and sometimes it stays in the cut if it like serves the story that we're doing and sometimes it gets left on the floor but it's like a very fun intimate environment at the taping where like you know they'll just be like hey uh, you see the Red Sox score last night they really (laughs) really took it on the chin and it's like (laughs) for the show you know and it's very fun and so in that case, you know, when they're kind of ragging on me, it's like fun to play it up like, oh, geez, guys, come on. But <laughs> well, but I was amazed even I, I was saying to you earlier before we started recording mm-hmm. that
0: even the format that people may not always appreciate on TV is that there's somebody
1: prodding them yeah. about different topics. Yeah. And that is a young white girl. Yeah. A young a young woman from Michigan, Julia Young. She's like incredible. Yeah. She's so Funny and fast, and just like has such a great rapport with yeah. the guys, and it's like it's really wonderful to be a part of and to watch that on the floor. Well, before we get too far into Sorry, do, yes, no, no,
0: yes. no, 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 not at all. But you know, I think the key takeaway before we get to sort of you leaving home and going out into college in the world is that it sort of puts the lie to the notion that to be a person in the world of comedy, you have to have had some torturous no, experience. I,
1: I try. I think that like painful experiences can be the impetus for like really great art comedy and and drama. But I also like, I really try to not like just let the stereotype of like every comedian is doing it because they like didn't get attention or like had a terrible time in school. I think like it is a different kind of art that comes from joy or, or even like being critical of things in the world. Not all art is fueled by like personal pain. All right, so you go off to Brandeis, and what were you studying there? What was your major? So, I was an English and creative writing major and I had a Spanish minor, which makes it easier to watch Los Spookies. <laughs> that is the number one, <laughs> truly the number one. Oh, and I and I understand. Uh I understand when Mero is riffing in Spanish yes, it yes. works.
0: <laughs> it has I'm sad. Yeah. Yes.
1: So, it actually has become a professional asset.
0: But was it, there something where did I remember that you were pretty into film like me, but we didn't have
1: an option. of Yeah. There was no minor even I think when I graduated in 07, but I took classes with Mark Weinberg who was awesome. I took his two screenwriting workshops and so it was English and creative writing with a concentration in like my focus was on short fiction. So I wrote a book of short stories as a thesis and that was really exciting and cool. And Steve McCauley was my advisor. Who's like a wonderful fiction writer and so that was like academically what I was doing. That was the zone. I was, And I came in thinking I was going to be a playwright. That's what like the dream was. I- you really done a lot of theater. I had done a lot of theater and I had written a play in high school that had won this like statewide competition. Wow. And so I'm like just such a I like grow towards the light in that way. So I was like, well, that's what I'm good at. So that's like yeah. what I'll keep doing. And like I got there and I was like, well, I just want to write things and like be around Productions, but I I didn't want to do the theater practicum of like, okay, you wear all black, you move this sandbag, you move it back. And I was just like, (laughs) ah, this isn't for me. So I switched to fiction. So that was like my academic career. But at the same time, freshman year, I started doing improv. Between freshman and sophomore year, I started doing stand up in Boston and then on campus as well. And then junior and senior year, my friends and I had a sketch group that put on a show. We did like Eight to ten a semester, so it was most weeks of the semester, and it would be f- Saturdays at midnight at Chums, yeah. which is, I believe, Chums still exists. They preserved right? that the rest but of they, the castle. Yeah, yeah. It was a, so there was a castle, yeah. which is like <laughs> I think about this so much, and it's it doesn't. It's such a shame that it doesn't exist anymore because the legend of how the castle came to be, right, is that this guy saw this castle in Scotland and was like. I want to recreate this. Do you know the story? Well, don't no, Please tell it just for our listeners. This yeah, yeah. yeah. A, the building
0: that was the main architectural landmark on a campus that had no
1: real consistent. Yeah. Architectural. The theme. architectural style yeah. was like incredibly all over the map like yeah. some of the buildings were like very traditional with hallways that were like built in the 60s right. to prevent rioting <laughs> and then the campus center was this big kind of like greened glass, copper yeah. Yeah, yeah and glass structure and then there was the literal a literal castle yes. and the way that it ended up in Waltham, Massachusetts was a guy was in Scotland and he was like I love this this is what I was told yeah, yeah. And he was like I love this castle will you give me the blueprint so I can recreate it and they were like no <laughs> beat it and he was like well I'm going to have this castle one way or another. So either he or he hired an architect to sketch it from all angles and they sketched the outside of the castle which of course doesn't tell you how it works on the inside and then they built it from the outside in like they tried to recreate it as best they could so there's like turrets that have nothing in them it's, right. it was like incredibly insensible right and i always loved and they put that dorm rooms yeah there. Dorm. so yeah so it was a dorm <laughs> but there was this coffee house too yes. but i always yeah. think of that as like a metaphor for doing something kind of the wrong yes. way and like yes. having a surface understanding of how something works and i've like said it to people yeah like because it's so ingrained yeah. in me and it's such like a formative part yeah. of like my understanding of the world. And where since be- they've taken it down because it was so important, it, it was nothing. Yeah. yeah. Someone will say something to me about, you know, about someone like starting a project without right. knowing where they're going. Go, oh, that's like building a castle from the outside. And they'll yeah. go, what do you mean? That's not a <laughs> saying. And I'm like, you're right. It is yeah. not a saying. Very and it's nice. now not even a castle. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: but we- the other part of that is mm-hmm. that Chums, the coffee house that you're mm-hmm. referring to. We had another legend, which was that this looked like deliberately made, especially post-90s, to look like Central Park from Friends.
1: And it was rumored to be the inspiration for Central Park. So then
0: I had Marta Kaufman on this podcast, and she said it's bullshit. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) She said that – because she went to Brandeis. This is a co-creator of Friends who met her co-creator, David Crane, Mm -hmm. at Brandeis. And so all of us at Brandeis needed some history to latch on to. Yeah. And it really, it had the couch in the middle. It, all, it looked very much like Central yeah, Park. Unfortunately, she said that's that's revisionist yeah, history. Was, it was yes. to to look like Central Park. But it feels that
1: like. is where you were for the first time performing comedy. Yeah, basically. It was definitely my first like home base for comedy. Mm-hmm. Like I was doing stuff in the city. But yeah, I think. You know what? Maybe it, it was the first place I ever consistently performed. I'd done like little coffee shops and stuff in high school or like coffee houses that friends would throw. But
0: that, let's nail that down, though, yeah. because so in high school, you already had sort of a inkling towards. Yeah, comedy. I think
1: so. Yeah. I, I mean, I played the comedic parts in all the high school yes. plays. And then a friend would like, you know, reserve this like community space and, yeah. and try to, th- you know, people would kids would play acoustic guitar. And I would I tried to stand up maybe twice okay. at like. Age seventeen or eighteen, and I just kind of was like, "Well, that was the thing I did." Mm -hmm. So Chums was the improv group I was in. Would perform at Chums like once every couple weeks, and then I was doing freshman year is when you did stand up for the first time, really. Yeah, but yeah, and where was that? Right at the end. So I did one on campus somewhere, maybe above the. What was it called? The Boulevard? Oh, um, yeah, the restaurant on the... Yeah, yep, yeah, above um, the cafeteria. Yeah, the kosher cafeteria. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. Sherman. Yes, above Sherman. <laughs> yes. That's exactly it. And so I made me one show there, and then I started... That summer, a friend of mine who's named Joe Smith, who I use his real name because it feels anonymous enough, yeah, yeah. had done some stand-up in the city, in Boston. I was going to say, not at Brandeis. Church, no, 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 no. He was doing shows at this club that no longer exists called... Dick Daugherty's Beantown Comedy Vault, which okay. is on Boylston Street in the theater district, yeah. basically, like right by Boston Common. So I started going there too and doing the open mics. And then by sophomore year, I was doing stand-up a ton at Chums, doing improv at Chums. And then junior year, we added this sketch show Saturday nights at midnight at Chums.
0: But like, I'm assuming that this kept going because you were getting good feedback or was yeah. it that you just were gonna figure it out until you got good feedback? With right. improv,
1: I felt like, It was something, I was never really great at it, but it was fun to do, and I liked the feedback from the audience, and our group was like, there were people in the group who were like better improvisers, and I could get laughs also, you know, without, I tried not to like torpedo the show, but like there's a difference between like getting laughs and like doing good improv, and I was much better at the former than the latter, and then stand up, it took me kind of a year of doing it as like almost a science experiment, like Can I do this? And it was getting better and better over that year. But after it took like 12 months and I remember thinking on stage like one night, oh, that was fun. I had a good time as opposed to I would show up at this club and I was 19 and there were like actual adults there to perform and I would put headphones on and kind of get psyched up and like feel very excited to do it. But the experience of being on stage wasn't a good time. It was like stressful and I was mostly trying to like see if I could replicate previous laughs or like, okay, well, does this thing work? If that thing works, does this thing work? And and it got better and better. And then after a year, I was like, oh, I enjoy this and I like doing it. And the feedback is getting there, too. I think the thing that probably keeps most
0: people from trying it is the fear of, I guess, being ridiculed. That was
1: never an issue for you? It felt bad to not do well, but it was never like, I think the kind of heckling of just someone who's bad is so rare you know you see it in the movies where someone hey get off the stage you suck dude and it's just not doesn't happen not nearly as much as you'd think yeah excuse me i think that there's like if the most the most kind of heckling you see it's often just like someone who's had a few drinks responding to something you said on stage as if you were conversing with them privately and that that happens like not infrequently, yeah. but it's like a little easier to deal with. Right. Like it's not usually confrontational. You know, you'll say something and someone will respond as if you were literally speaking oh, to them, just like right. "Oh no," <laughs> or like "Come on," you know. Right. Something like right. it, it almost just comes out of people when they have a, a strong response. So I'm
0: going to ask the question that I think maybe not every person who interviews you would be able to ask you, but yeah. I, I want to. You know, is there something inherently funny about Jews? About Jews. Because Brandeis, you know, that's the first yeah. adjective people associate with. Jewish. And and it actually is a fairly diverse place. But still, I mean, there's a long history. It seems like going back to the Borscht Belt and vaudeville and all of that, right through Josh Gottelman yeah. of people, Jewish people being funny. <laughs> and that's where it that's stops. Where
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think there's like a kind of value with of that. I think it's like cultivated, yeah. right? Like I think there's kind of the idea. And it's also – I wonder if it is a religion that has room for humor within the religion and the culture. Like, there's that history of comedic, like, all, there's, like, their own set of Jewish archetypes, yeah. right? Like, the schlemiel and the schmuck. <laughs> and, like, it exists like within the religion and the culture, whereas I don't know not that people of other religions aren't allowed to be funny, yeah. but it feels just knowing it a little more intimately. Like Judaism creates a little more space for that. Well, and people have said, I, I don't know if this is sort of just
0: bullshit, but they say like, it's obviously been a rocky history for the people sure. and they
1: have to get through it somehow. I think that's true. And that's like the kind of early Jewish humor that you're exposed to is like, it's almost like, russian shtetl parables that are like comedic and these stock comic characters and so i remember like being exposed to those in hebrew school as part of this kind of like darkly comic history which is like i mean there's real darkness there and it was still mined for humor and still like the humor was found i've never thought about it in quite this way before but it really feels like it's not just a cultural thing as in like Jewish parents and their kids, but even like in the structures of the religion, yeah. you, you, there's like, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm less exposed to it, but I just don't know like Catholic humor. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, I know sure. Catholic people who are very funny yes. and they can poke fun at their religion, but it almost feels like they're being irreverent right. rather than like participating in a religious tradition.
0: Who were the comedians who you think most influenced your own? sensibility i think i had seen that you had said mel brooks at one point yeah i'm
1: such i was such a fan i would like i've seen his movies so many times from when i was a kid my parents let me tape this is i must have been like eight or nine we taped blazing saddles off of tv (laughs) off of like network tv so like it was edited (laughs) enough to watch like at 8 p.m on a wednesday Right, right. right. since i was very young and like monty python was there (laughs) <laughs> Not physically, like yes. I watched, you know, <laughs> Holy Grail was like a touchstone. And then it became like the Big Lebowski was really formative because that came out when I was like 13. And it was kind of the one of the first things that I was like, this informs my burgeoning adult taste in things. Yeah. This is like a grown up thing that I like. And it's like weird and kind of culty. And that was like really big for me and my friends. It, we kind of latched on to that. I watched a lot of stand-up. I watched, like, a lot of Carlin when I was a kid. Um, Where would you get that? So the first Carlin Comedy special, they put it on, I, think. I think it. this is the order it went in. But, like, when my Uncle Jay passed away, which was either 98 or 99, he had, like, this extensive collection of VHS cassettes that he had just taped off of, like, HBO. Mm-hmm. And I would just sift through them, and he had, like, Carlin specials. Okay. And so I watched that. Yeah. And then it was a lot of albums too. I like love comedy oh, really? albums. Yeah. I, so I bought the first Carlin one I bought was the CD with the big parental advisory logo <laughs> covering right. his face, right. which is like, you know, like a fun, cheeky thing. But I also had this is like so dated, but my parents were subscribed to like the BMG Music Club yeah. and they would let me like pick some music sometimes or, or it was, sometimes it was comedy. Yeah. So like I, one batch that I had, I was maybe 11. Cause they didn't want me to get like super dirty stuff. So I've never gotten into like jerky boys. Right. Although every Jewish kid I went to summer camp with, it felt like had copies of those Adam Sandler albums oh, yeah. and got them confiscated one by one. <laughs> Cause it was, they were so dirty. People yeah. don't talk about it no, anymore. No. It was filthy, right. but we loved it. But the ones that I was allowed to get, I had, I had, the Jeff Foxworthy, You Might Be a Redneck album, which I can't vouch for every joke on it. But it's like Jeff Foxworthy was like a very good stand-up comedian. Yeah. He was like very skilled yeah. and like funny. And, I, you know, I'm less fluent in his contemporary stuff. Mm-hmm. Ellen DeGeneres' stand-up album. A Monty Python sketch album. And this is unfortunate, but it's like a part of so many people's comedy Five tutelage. Eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guessed it. And, and so it's like weird. I can't not. No, I mean, say it the work is still good i mean it's yeah unfortunately, i can't enjoy yeah. it now yeah. but like i can't say i didn't enjoy it then yeah, that yeah. would be disingenuous sure. so like that kind of stuff and then i you know getting cds when it was cds and and so i like loved stand-up even from like in my tween and teen years so this is all the context to say that when you graduated in 2007 what
0: was the game plan did you actually think immediately, I'm going to try to make a go of
1: this as a career, or what were you thinking the future was going to look like? I didn't really know. I think I still thought at that point, like I had just written my thesis, which was like the biggest piece of writing I'd ever done. And I'd written a script for Mark's screenwriting workshop. So I had kind of, they weren't great in retrospect, but I had accomplished these substantial pieces of writing just in terms of length and dedication. And I had done that, and I kind of thought in the foreground, I was like, well, I went to school to be a fiction writer, and that's what I'll do. I'll write funny literary works. That will be my career, and I'll get into that. And so, and the model the- was – what's the guy? Scenaris. Scenaris, right. A de- like a de- but it was like fiction. So like a George Saunders yeah. was who I was like, that's the goal. But it was kind of abstract because I was teaching preschool – that was that my was like day the job. Family business, or I, um, your mo- were you working at your mom? That I had for years, yeah. but when I graduated, yeah. she had left the school where she, that she was the director of, okay. and so I kind of struck out on my own yeah. in the preschool business. <laughs> so, yeah, and so that you were doing that while figuring out. Yeah, longer I did term, that. I tutored for like a little extra money on the side, yeah. and then was doing a lot of stand-up. So like my literary ambitions were mostly theoretical. I just didn't have the patience or the dedication to like craft a short story send it out wait for six months for a response for a literary magazine like I did a couple and my parents who are like the loveliest people my dad I think saw that I was doing a lot of stand-up and getting better at like a local level yeah. And but he would you know they would go to shows sometimes and be like these shows overall are not very good mm-hmm. you're kind of like because I was at, at entry-level shows yeah. open mics and yeah. like the kind of earliest entry showcases and would be like this is not like a big pond you're in. I think that was their concern. They never said it that way. But they weren't concerned like, my son is getting into stand-up, oh my God. No, no, no. I think th- what they were concerned with, and this was such a sweet thing, yeah. my dad said, you know, you keep... Talking about like writing and you're it doesn't seem like you're writing that much except for for the stage. He was like, here's a couple bucks. Go like buy the literary magazines that you like buy a bunch of them and figure out which ones you want to submit to. And it was like, you know, it was 40 bucks or something and he wasn't paying my rent. But it was such a generous thing to do and so supportive. So this is like
0: you're out of college. You were on living on your own or maybe living on my own. When did
1: the stuff in Atlanta happen? Because that seems like the turning point. So that was a turning point. Yeah, that was 2010. So for like three years, I was teaching, doing stand up locally. And maybe like I would write a spec script, but not get super nuts and boltsy about making sure it was good. Mm-hmm. So it have some good jokes in it and a couple good ideas, but it was like formatted badly, just wasn't right, yeah. wasn't tight. But mostly, I was doing stand up and teaching and like hanging out with my friends. So I went to Atlanta for the Laughing Skull Comedy Festival in 2010. First time you'd sort of gone out of way out of town to do a thing like that. <sighs> it might have been, yeah. You know, I've been around New England and I'd maybe I'd performed in a bunch of different places, but never at the stakes of like I submitted a tape I got accepted to this festival I flew down there Mm -hmm. and it was a competition and I won the competition which got me out on the road a little bit got you out on the road in the sense that now places want to book you yeah part of the prize for winning was that a number of clubs were like obligated to book you and some of them came through on that obligation and some of them didn't and some of them were places that I like loved performing. and was like this is a great place for me to be and then other places I was like Oh, you know what? My chops aren't up to snuff to, like, make it happen here in, let's say, hypothetically, Chattanooga, Tennessee. (laughs) Um, Like, I just couldn't bring it at the level. You weren't there. You weren't at a good fit. I I wasn't at the time. And I think if I went back now, it would go much better. But that was, we're talking nine years ago. Maybe eight and a half by the time the booking came and I showed up there. This
0: was you going on the road. Yeah. You'd move back home to save the money to go and capitalize on
1: the opportunities to perform. I was just home for like three months, maybe four. I drove cross country with a friend and we did a bunch of shows and just like hung out and saw different cities. And then after that, Mm -hmm. I'd moved back out and had like used that as the staging ground for being like, okay, I have this ambition. I'd met some people in Atlanta and was like, okay, this seems like a good thing to do. And a friend of mine down there was like. I'll make sure that people at the festival see your tape and know you come recommended, which was so generous. And so that was, yeah. So that was kind of the staging ground for like the next phase of my career. I went out on the road performing at clubs all over the place after that. And like, you know, for break even weeks, it would be like a four or $500 weekend where I'd have to get myself there and like crash on a couch. But I was like, okay, do these jokes work in Minneapolis? Do these jokes work in Austin? Do these jokes work in. Nashville, you know, wherever I could go. And then it also got me my first college agent. She was at the festival. And they, that means i will book you on campuses? Yeah, yeah. That was, like, a little money. And that was when—a little more money, you know, because it would be one night. They would give you a travel stipend and then a fee for the show. And I would come home having made, like, several hundred dollars, yeah. which is, like, a lot. And what, this was all happening, what, in the summers? Because you never left the day job. No. So the my— Second to last year teaching, I think I took the summer off because it was a year-round program, so some kids wouldn't come in for the summer, but so the staffing could be lighter. So I was just taking more and more time off, which is like a thing that... I think he was just giving a, like he was doing a little workshop, giving a talk for emerging comedians at the comedy studio, Who's which was, was Mike me? Birbiglia oh, okay. at the time in Harvard Square. The owner, Rick Jenkins of the club said like, hey, Mike's in town working on, this was Sleepwalk with me he was working yeah, on it at the time. Yeah. But if, if like young comedians have questions, come and he'll sit with it for an hour and just kind of do a Q&A. Oh. And he, one thing that he said that always stuck with me was like, don't leave your day job as soon as you think like, I can scrape by without it. Stay at your day job until you're being pulled away by your creative work so much that you can't afford to stay at it anymore. And so that's what I did. So I would, you know, if I booked a college, I think the first one I got was in, like, Shreveport, Louisiana, and it was on a Thursday. So I had to take off, like, two days, maybe three days to, like, make it happen. And my boss was so sweet and so understanding and... So that was kind of – so 2010 was the start of that, and then I stayed for another year, and summer of 2011, I left my preschool job and moved to New York. Just had your uh, eighth anniversary, I think, of getting to New York. I Why,
0: did. <laughs> why must somebody basically, it seems like, go – if you're going to
1: take it to the next level, New York or L.A.? Yeah. So I think I'd accomplished all the things that I could accomplish in Boston – at the level I was working at. Like I mentioned, I didn't quite have the chops at age. I was 26 when I moved and I wasn't like quite ready to break through the ceiling from like middle act, kind of the more experienced opening act to headliner around new England. Like I wasn't going to go into like a VFW in Augusta, Maine crush for an hour, <laughs> drive home. Like I just didn't yeah, quite yeah, have it. Right. And I thought, you know, if I want to continue doing stand up on another level, maybe try to, Uh, perform on television there are so many more opportunities to be seen and be booked for things in New York and Los Angeles and I have to go there if I want to so by this point I thought like comedy seems like it could pan out as a career yeah after the stuff in Atlanta in 2010 I was like okay I am at kind of a crossroads where I could keep doing this as like a local comedian with some credits who works hard and gets better and then maybe headlines new England, or I could go to New York and see how it goes for a couple of years. See if like my hunch that maybe I could do this as a career pans out. And so I was wise enough to think I'm pretty good at standup, but I'm not a breakout stand-up comedy star. So I have to be in a place where there's other opportunities for writing, and and so that was when I was like, okay, let's really make a run at writing for television. And even maybe it seems before that you broke into writing for magazines. So. Yes, yeah, yeah. So as I was leaving Boston, and I stopped working a day job, I had and I was still tutoring, but I'd stopped working full time. I'd started submitting things to like websites and magazines, yeah. and I'd got a couple of pieces placed in McSweeney's. And so like as I was ready to leave Boston, I wish my one the one thing from my career that I would say, like, you should have done that differently, not even a regret, mm-hmm. just like a corrective that I would have taken is I would have started doing that years earlier. Is it just
0: good sort of essentially exercise for a comedian to have to I mean, how long a piece would
1: these be? 600, 800 words. Yeah. And it's nice. I think it keeps your writing tight. It exposes you to different audiences. It like gets people. Be- like those things are still I would say and I've done a few sets on late night and I'm so grateful for those experiences but like when I write a humor piece for now like the New Yorker or the yeah. New York Times more people will reach out with like other opportunities it feels like because it's like the New York Times is just so visible and you're the one humor thing right. in it yeah. the same with the New Yorker when you get a piece in print in the New Yorker you're the humor piece there and it goes to the whole circulation whereas like when I did a spot on Corden earlier yeah. this year, it was wonderful, but you're like the very end of a show that starts at 1230. Yeah. And so like and it, next next night, there's, there's another, another one. one yeah. yeah. And like, you know, and he's already done yes. comedy and people are watching for him, yeah. not for like, Oh, I hope I discover something yeah. new tonight. Yeah. I'm so grateful for that experience. And I don't mean to besmirch no, 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 no. that. I just mean like when you're like doing the humor thing in kind of a literary venue, especially if you, have really crafted your jokes and worked on them. It really shines in a way that like a- and sticks out. So I wish I'd started doing stuff like that a little earlier. So you get to New York, you're making I guess a few bucks
0: from the writing, a few bucks from as you're starting to get into the stand-up scene mm-hmm. there, but still had a day job. A tutoring job. Tutoring, yeah. but how long did it take to actually feel decent about how things were going in New York? So the first six
1: months were absolute garbage. Uh, Comedically, (laughs) I just was like I I would get off stage and be like, maybe I never did this before. Like maybe whatever I was doing in other cities and in Boston was like fake and a sham because it is not going well here. And then after six months, I started to feel like, oh, I have my sea legs a little bit. I know how to present myself to the audiences here because I think New York audiences It's not that they want to be impressed by your resume. They want you to prove it, which is, like, also a Boston thing. I think Boston audiences really want you to, like, grab them by the throat and be like, I'm the boss now. And in New York crowds, there's, like, an even, it's even more so. I think they expect to kind of be talked to and addressed and, like, corralled. Yeah. And so I, I just got those skills down a lot. But night two in New York was, the, so what sustained me for the first six months was, and I think I've told him this story because it's so, I feel so dweeby and fanboy about it. But the f- first show, my friends um, Sam Murrell and Harrison Greenbaum ran a show, Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. And they, Sam had seen, or Harrison had seen that I had moved. And so my second night in New York, they're like, oh, come do our show. And I was on stage and it went, okay mm-hmm. not it was one of the better sets I had in my first six months but as I got off stage I had sense I was just like this very dumb joke that stayed in my act for like A month about the movie the mighty ducks the the first two mighty ducks movies and i was talking about how emilio Estevez's character is coaching them because he got a dui and he's so inherently unsympathetic (laughs) that the other kids have to be monsters to make him sympathetic and i described the icelandic team from the second film as like hulking scandinavian holocaust deniers (laughs) mustachioed scandinavian holocaust deniers and Jim Gaffigan, unbeknownst to me, was in the room and went up after me and said, tagged off the joke. He goes, you know, it's tough for someone who looks like me to perform after you've all just heard the words hulking Scandinavian Holocaust deniers. (laughs) And it, like, brought me so much joy to be like, oh, I'm in the fabric of New York comedy. Like. Even if I never accomplish anything, like I have not been rejected like a bad organ transplant. Well, that yeah, that's got to be a big moment. And then
0: how does I think in that very same first year of being out there, you have your
1: first album? Yes. So that I recorded it in Boston right before I moved. I, I recorded in June, moved in July. Album came out in November.
0: Is an album putting out an album? the same as you know a guy can go put a song on spotify or is there more to it where some
1: outside arbiter has to say this is good enough to have an album you can do it either way and i think a lot of people self-produce because now with being able to produce albums for relatively little money and distribute them widely you can do it on your own and kind of pocket all the money i worked with a, a small label at the time called rooftop comedy and they produced comedy albums and so i had done their festival in Aspen after HBO had no longer, uh, after HBO relinquished control of that festival to rooftop. So I met them there. I met the folks there and worked on that album there. And then so Dominic Del Bene, who was my point person there, I worked on all three of my albums with him and he, so rooftop got acquired by, Audible, which was acquired by Amazon. So that became this whole thing, and then you know, a whole bigger entity. And then Dominic has since left to have his own label called Blonde Medicine. And that's where my newest album is out with. But this
0: okay, so this first one, which is called Everything's the Best, I guess talking about your life in Boston and preschool and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff. And I think it may have been the beginning of this of this notion that seems to have solidified over the years that you are just the nicest guy in comedy. (laughs) Literally, there's articles in Vulture and everything else where basically, you know, people in comedy seem to generally
1: be a little hardened or whatever. Sure. You are the opposite. Well, thank you. I now have the confidence because it's a very sweet reputation to have. I think there are other very nice people. Also, to be kind of a sweet-tempered man, you get extra credit, right. whereas, like, I think it's just, like, expected that women will right. be nice or, like, a Joan Rivers-style, like, historical, boundary-breaking figure. Right. Like, either you're that or you just have to, like, go along to get along. It right. feels like that's an expectation. Right. Not that that's what women are like. But as a man, you get, like, extra credit for being nice. So I like, try to acknowledge that. But it is, I think, the reason that it sticks so much is that I try to be like that as a person, but also my comedy is very friendly, which not even very nice people, their comedy can be like grittier and grimier. Like Dave Attell has a wonderful reputation as a human. People speak so highly of like the charity work he does, but he gets on stage and he's so dirty and so funny. But I think what, why, People speak of me that way in part is because like when I get on stage, I'm just like, hey, guys, what's up? Anybody have a good sandwich today? You know, or whatever it is that I say. I don't know. You they call it, I guess. What do they
0: say? Performing clean or how do they what's the phrase? I'm not even I don't even work that clean. That's the thing. It's just
1: friendly. You will swear. Yeah. Okay. I do. I it's not all over the place. And and on the albums, I try to thin it out a little bit just for the sake of like. People being able to listen to it wherever and getting more play on the like clean, serious radio stations. But like I'll curse on stage, but sometimes I'll get off stage having cursed and people will go. I did a show on Long Island last week, maybe. And it was so fun. And it was an older crowd. And I was I took a lot of pride in being able to to perform for an older crowd, which again, years ago, it would be very intimidating to me. And now in my 30s, it feels like okay, we are all adults here. Right, right. My friend, Robert Dean, who I brought to open for me said he was like, I don't feel like their son anymore, yeah. which is like, that's such a good way to feel. I don't feel like they're looking at me saying like, that could be my son, which is so nice. Yeah. But I got, I cursed, you know, in, in 50 minutes, yeah. maybe 10 times yeah. and not wantonly, right. but <laughs> a guy came, I came up to me and said, it was very nice. It was really fun. And it was so nice. You can do it without saying motherfucker all the time. And it was like, I did say motherfucker yeah. at least once. Like it's it definitely, I remember cause it's written into the right, joke.
0: Right. Well, just as a quick contrast, cause sure. you're saying that now that's very recent. You can handle pretty much what's thrown at you. Yeah. The converse of that, I guess is just looking at what was going on around that time. As you're settling into life and comedy in New York, you take gigs where you can yeah. get them or whatever.
1: Was there something in a basement with a rabbi? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I had, man, this one I might still bomb because teens are so difficult. But I got booked to do a, it was a Purim party (laughs) for like Orthodox Jewish kids who weren't themselves that religious like it was right. like from a modern orthodox synagogue i think but it was like the kids who just like did not care and <laughs> they i it was like nine kids in a basement in <laughs> forest hills queens and i drove out i i had a, i lived in harlem at the time and i did because i didn't have a day job i would just moved my car for double park my car for street cleaning every day right. and so i had this car i drove out to forest hills which is like you know in new york city but almost an hour away yeah, yeah, yeah. And just ate it so bad. (laughs) Like, they could not have given a shit less. It was so brutal. And then afterwards, the rabbi had, I, I, like, went to get paid, and they were paying me in cash, and the rabbi only had 20s. (laughs) And so he was like, do you have change? And I said, no. And so he could have given me one (laughs) sixty. and just been like and we'll never speak of this again but he offered me 140 and I was like well that's not what What I was was promised it was was 150 I go that wasn't the deal and he goes well it didn't go that well (laughs) and I was like this is like I can't tell people this because it will perpetuate (laughs) anti-semitism I was like, you, the only thing keeping me from doubt, like talking about this on stage, right. is that I don't want people extrapolating. Was this that is, the low point? It was one of them. I had a really rough professional period at, in late. I'm trying to think of when it was. I think it was late 2013 because I had had this kind of in late 2012. I had this explosive viral Internet success. Please tell us. because I mean, people will know it, It's it's. It's wild how people still know this. Oh, totally. It's really impressive. This is to, modern Seinfeld. So I, I co-created and co-wrote the modern Seinfeld Twitter account with my friend Jack Moore. And that was late 2012. And that was like explosively popular beyond what we could have ever expected or imagined. And it gave us opportunities beyond what we thought like tweets could do. Just tell for let's, – let's say there's somebody listening who has no idea what's what this was. Very reasonable. It is a – Seinfeld, it's a parody Twitter account that was like imagining Seinfeld episodes that would exist in the present day. So, so much of it was about cultural etiquette and mores and interacting with little pieces of technology, answering machines, pay phones. I love the one about Elaine is dating a downgrader. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so can you, can you share just as an example? Just to, So yeah. one of my favorite ones that, that I, I liked from early on was that... Elaine is dating her upstairs neighbor and he uh, when they break up, he makes his Wi-Fi network name. Elaine is a bitch and won't change it until <laughs> they get back together. And like that is the kind of thing like that feels very Seinfeldy. just right. like people at their worst at kind of exploiting the pressure points right. of social convention. Yes. And it, there's just so much. My friend Dan Bulger, who's an incredibly funny comedian based in Boston, said once he was like, you know, there. If we had if, – if they had cell phones, there, you would lose 50% of the episodes of Seinfeld, yeah. which, like, there are a few that you would lose. You would lose, like – you could lose, like, where did we park or, right. like, we are at different movie theaters. But you gain text messaging. Yes. You gain, vo- like, the voicemail on your phone. You gain uh, social media. There's so much that you well, get.
0: that that is the – sort of ties in with the one that I was actually referencing where it was supposedly Elaine – I'm trying to remember. Elaine was – Calls the guy she's dating. Yeah, he doesn't want to, or he oh, then texts she, her back. Text. Yeah, she <laughs> texts down- him. Yes,
1: <laughs> right. He always lowers the communication. So she text yes. him. then what did he yep. do? He, I forget what was. Maybe she texts him words, and he responded with an emoji yes, or something. Exactly. Yeah, was, that and he funny. would always like downgrade the communication. But this thing was huge. I it was mean, huge. you guys
0: had a hundred thousand followers in a week. Yeah, eight hundred thousand something overall. Yeah. it was
1: and referenced on Jeopardy. It was really, really wild and yeah. like incredibly gratifying. And it's a very silly thing. And I, I but I appreciate so much what it did for my career. But at the moment, it's not like a monetizable. thing. No. So I would go into these meetings and so, like with people that were like, we love this. What else do you have? Yeah. And I was like, well, I do stand up. And they were like, not that. And so I, because I still hadn't I'd written a lot of short form stuff, humor pieces for magazines and, and newspapers and a lot of women's magazines. And it just didn't hadn't quite translated to something that like a TV or film executive could hire me for. Which for you was at that That moment the goal. goal. Yeah. Yeah. And it also wasn't like I was getting these freelance gigs, but it also wasn't like, I think I would have jumped at it if someone had been like, do you want to be a humor columnist for wherever? I think I would have seized that as well, but that wasn't coming up as much. You know, I was getting like individual freelance offers for like a couple hundred bucks here, a couple hundred bucks there. So that was 2012. And 2013, I spent just applying, doing late-night submission packets mostly for TV shows. Which is how, like, you know,
0: if you wanted Letterman to consider mm-hmm. you or whatever, you have to
1: put a whole thing together. Yeah, and I, I think I applied for Letterman in, the, in the some of the, one of the last few years. Yeah. And so I did that for, like, a year. And it, towards the end of that year, I had a couple things that—so the lowest point was— I booked a late night set on a show that they approved the material and then unapproved it and bumped my date, so I didn't get a. Or this I think, is uh, like a network, update. yeah, a TV, like a TV late night spot, and that the the material was approved and then disapproved by like someone higher up in the network. And then the show was canceled. So I never got to do it. All right. So now you can tell us. Yeah, it was, watch- um, it was totally biased with W. Come out bell. Oh yeah. Who, and, and so I have no animosity towards yeah, yeah, the people yeah, yeah, who work yeah, yeah. there. I like have a lot of fr- really great yeah, friends yeah. that work there, but I think it like was a network decision eventually that they were like, mm, not really. Oh. And, and, and then the show got canceled before I could get rebooked with different material. Oh. Then I, Sold a piece to the New Yorker that they squashed the day it was supposed to run. They were like, actually, we're never running it. And that was really... Do you only get paid if they run it? I don't remember if I got a kill fee. But I just... It was like my first thing for them. And I was so excited. I was like... And it was supposed to be my rebound from the late night set. Yeah. And then (laughs) I saw... This was right when Inside Lewin Davis came yeah, out yeah. and I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan yeah. and I went to see it with my girlfriend at the time and I just like stared in wide-eyed horror and was like, oh, that's me. I'm, because to me at that time, the, the way that film imprinted on me and my understanding of it was he's not bad at what he does, but he destroys his life because he thinks he's better than he is and destined for more than he's capable of or more than his like skill level and personality. He can only go so far because of those things and his like reluctance to make things that are for people to enjoy. And I watched that and was like, Oh, that must be, that's a movie about me. I'm that guy. And what can you do about it? If you think you are that guy, right. It was a bleak feeling. And you know, it, it, as far as, a career rock bottom goes, that is that was not super devastating. I was I didn't have to live out of my car. I didn't, you know, but it, it was like emotionally I was like, oh, I've had these things that I thought were going to go well and then they didn't. I thought this was going to kind of push the thing last year. The momentum from that has kind of petered out a little bit. In the middle of the year, the thing that buoyed me was I got to do a tiny, tiny bit of, like, consulting work for Billy on the Street. Which is great. Which is yeah. really uh, yeah, – yeah, I'm such – he's so funny. I'm yeah. such a fan of the show. And so that was really exciting. And that was, like, July, August. And then by December, I was like, well, it's over uh, for you me. Were gonna, you this, were going to quit? No, 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 no. I just – I was like – but I was thinking about maybe this is the point at which I I decide – I've hit my ceiling and I can move back either stay in New York and kind of like work at a low level and enjoy that or move back to Boston and like aspire to local headliner sometimes opening for bigger acts and get and while get a, doing a day job while doing a day job. And around that time, a couple months after that, and that was kind of the low. And, and well, couple, let me let me stop. You oh, there, sure. Please. There's one thing that I
0: think we just should note. Which is, at that time when you were feeling like shit, if I have my chronology correct, yeah, you probably could have used somebody to get you know oh. giving you a pep talk, right? <laughs> so that's where that came from. Well, so tell take because you are now one of the other things. All right, so Josh Gollman, the things that come to mind, aside from the shows that you work on, sure, and there's all these. Everything is Josh Gollman, nice guy. The other thing is. That supports that impression that people have is that you will literally, you know, you have a few minutes to kill. I don't know if you're in an Uber or whatever. It's like you'll go on Twitter and say, you know, who needs a pep talk or yeah. whatever. And people will write to you with their problems yep. and you will encourage them, yeah. which is a very nice thing to do. Thank you. Where did that
1: start? I had a gig that I was supposed to do, a headlining gig for low money in like New Haven, Connecticut. Yep. And it canceled day of. And I just that it was in that same period where I was like, oh, I'm not making any headway thing. The things that I think are etched in stone that I'm at least going to get to do these things are the the stone is eroding before my very (laughs) eyes. So this gig canceled and I was just feeling so glum about it, even though it might not have been a good show. I was just like, I thought this was in the bag. I thought I was going to drive a couple hours Talk for forty five minutes, pocket a couple hundred bucks, drive home, and like, you know, eat a late night sandwich with my roommates. And it just didn't. It fell away, and I was so bummed out. And I thought, I wish somebody would tell me it would be okay. But I didn't. I had a few, probably several thousand followers on like Twitter at the time, but I didn't want several thousand people to tell me it would be okay or to ask several thousand people. So instead, in And by this time, it it was maybe later in the evening and I didn't want to just like call my parents or call a a childhood friend. So I just tweeted like, hey, if anybody else wants to hear a kind word, because thinking this would mean so much to me right now. And if I can do that for someone else, that will give me the same kind of lift. Mm -hmm. And so it was maybe a. A dozen or a couple dozen people, and it was real. I try to be specific to people as specific as I can, based on like what they. So, give an example. Tell of, me, like, what's somebody saying? To you. So, like, one that I get a lot is like, I have this job interview that I'm nervous for, something like that. Mm-hmm. And they will say, look, you're not there by accident. You've got yourself to this point. You didn't trick anyone. They want to see you, so just go in there and be. Like, they ask for you. You don't have to worry that you isn't good enough. Like something like that. Very nice. Thank you. And it's, it's like not, it's not quite a platitude and it's not quite personal. And I try not to give advice as much as I can because like, I don't think I'm qualified to give advice, but I do think there are encouragements that stand up. Like, you know, someone, someone saying like, I have had, I just had this bad breakup. And you can say to a person who's had a bad breakup, like, there are people in your life that care about you and they're there for you if if you want. I know it feels hard to ask, but there are people that care about you and it's not always going to feel as painful as it is right now. And that's like, it's just, hey, it's going to be, it can get better. And I try not to be Pollyanna-ish about like, like people sometimes, say, this is when I get a lot in the last couple of years is like, the world is so depressing, which it is and I try not to be like everything's going to work out because it's not not everything is going to work out but I can what I try to say to people is like look it is so discouraging but you can be the kind of person that helps and do your best to make things better for people and that's like that means something yeah. and not not everything is going to go right but if you work as hard as you can to make as much as you can as good as it can be that that's the thing. Well, anyone listening to this will
0: understand one of one of the more amusing descriptions that one of these articles had, which was "hipster Mr. Rogers." Hipster I love Mr. that. Thank that you. was great, and it's it's uh, it's great that somebody's doing that. But Thank you. and out of this sort of dark period for you came
1: the dream scenario, in a way, yeah. right? Like so, take us through. just after that period. So that was kind of like winter. 2013 going into 2014 and I was back out on the road a bunch. I had like a bunch of road dates. I was excited about some as a headliner, some as an opener. And I was starting to feel like a little more like, well, this will be cool. At least I'll have this and I can tutor and like worry less about this showbiz stuff. But I had a couple applications to writing gigs that I was still really hopeful for. And I'd applied the last one I did in 2013 was for last week tonight with John Oliver, which was right when they were staffing initially. And from what I was told, Eventually so it was like a couple months of waiting. I did the packet with its specific requirements of like we don't know what the show is exactly, but like pitch us a bunch of stuff. And then there was a second packet, which I canceled. I had plans on my birthday, and like I was like, Well, this is my most Lewin Davis move. I canceled my own birthday to (laughs) like do the second packet. And I waited another month and I heard basically that there was I was ninth on a list of eight. And so they didn't have a writing job for me, but they wanted to talk to me about working for doing their web and social media stuff because they liked my writing and wanted a comedy writer doing that as opposed to like an SEO expert or something. And they knew you'd had some success with modern platform. So they knew that I had written online and kind of understood that climate. Yeah. And so I, I. Took that job in February 2014. And were you just, like, beside yourself? It was so exciting. Yeah. I, it was, like, it's exciting to be at the ground floor of a new show and yeah. see everything fall into place and see, like, oh, they're doing this, and, like, maybe this doesn't last forever, and it turns into that. But it's so cool to see it from the inside, how everything.
0: And you had your own sort of domain there. Yeah. Where you had
1: to. And it uh, was cool. Yeah, yeah. It was really fun. And, and, and then after a year of that, this I this was such a we, sorry, sorry I
0: gotta stop you just because to further support your your rep your your street cred as uh, as Mr. Nice Guy you had some clients still as for tutoring
1: oh yes I did <laughs> so I got hired the last week in February but the the SATs that I was tutoring for were the end of the first week in March so there were like two weeks where I had like maybe two tutoring clients left and I didn't want to leave them in the lurch with like a, especially one of them I think had kind of test anxiety. Mm -hmm. And if it had just been somebody that was like, I need extra reps with math, I maybe could have handed them off to another tutor that could have done that. But I didn't want to pull the plug on this client that I had who I think one of her big things was just feeling Supported and ready to take the test, so So I tutored. Yeah, my first two weeks, I had one or two (laughs) tutoring clients that I was still wrapping up with. So I did that. I was like tutoring, working this this job in TV.
0: And that first year at Last Week Tonight, though, in terms of creating a online presence and having things go viral and just building up the online audience, you guys crashed the FCC's servers, right? Yeah, (laughs) that was was really fun. And that was that
1: was a bit that was written by one of the writers. I don't know who came up with the premise of like directing people to the FCC, but I believe the bit and excuse me if I'm speaking out of turn, the like mobilizing the trolls (laughs) that that framework was, um, Jeff Haggerty, who's so funny and wrote this great run where John was like, go to this website and comment on this, like use your horrible powers for good. And, and it, and I kind of was there to facilitate that, to like make sure people were directed to the right place online and it was really cool. Like it was cool to be an arm of the show that like took the ball from the broadcast and then ran with it onto into the Internet. Yeah, it made it And it was that. really fun. You know, even if it wasn't my idea, it was like very cool to facilitate and help problems. And that. you guys would have a lot of that kind of stuff where it would be. I mean, there was this whole gecko thing. Yeah. They go get those geckos. <laughs> and Like there was a lot of fun fan art
0: with that it was like really fun and that first season i don't know if this is something where they recognize individuals but there's no question that it was related to your work
1: that the show for that first season won the emmy for interactive yeah. programming and they th- yeah it was really flattering and validating and that but that was that happened after the, when that happened i had already moved over to write for the show that came about though how because that's that was what you wanted to do it was And so I think they still, they had me in mind as like, if we have the budget or if we need another writer, we will look at Josh first. And so I got hired. It was like, I got hired for this, to write on this Comedy Central pilot. I like had taken a meeting and they wanted me to work for them for like three to five weeks on our hiatus. And so I, I had to ask if I could do it. Mm -hmm. And. I had gotten to work that day or I'd gotten off the train that day and my shoe had a big hole in it and it was (laughs) raining and I didn't realize there was a hole in this like this horrible pair of dress shoes that I wore a lot. And so I bought a pair of like $20 H&M sneakers and those were just like cutting up my feet. So I was in my office with I took I'd taken off my sneakers (laughs) and so I was because my feet they made my feet hurt so badly and I was in my office and they called me in. T- across the hall to talk with John and Tim, and I think maybe Liz was there. John Oliver and Tim Carvell, who's a, an EP there and is like a brilliant comedy writer. And and Liz Dan, who's another executive producer there, who's wonderful. And they said we we can't let you take this job because we wouldn't let a writer for the show take this job because we don't know how close it's going to be to what we're, it's so unformed and we're saying that because we want to give you writing credit on the next season. And so I'm in there like in my socks, like my (laughs) feet are bleeding and I'm just like, Oh, this is the dream. And it's just like, it's like a moment I will never forget because the meeting, the circumstances of the meeting were so weird. And so they were like, is, is that something you'd want? And I was so thrilled and over the moon. And then I wrote for the show for four seasons. And let's just
0: remind people since we are in Emmy season, first season nomination well i guess that first season that the show was nominated for variety writing was when you were still doing the
1: interactive but you were part of that or no, so i can give you the i can yeah, give please. you the rundown it feels so egotistical no, to have it on. so close to very so the first season of the show i believe they didn't submit to the. the show premiered in April yes yes and I believe they didn't submit because there were so few episodes that fit in the submission window so season one we when I was doing digital exclusively we were not submitted season two I had started writing for the show and they submitted whoever was in charge of submitting names whether it was someone at the network or a producer at the show I believe on the initial list because I'd only written since the beginning of the season so my name hadn't been put on the list by who you know, maybe it was. I, I don't even I don't even know who it was. I don't want to like throw yeah. anyone under the bus. But the line, or line producer at the time, Diane Fitzgerald, who is just the greatest, she did the math and figured out that I had written on just enough shows percentage wise to qualify. Mm-hmm. So I was nominated season two I was nominated and we went and and was very exciting and we got to sit, you know, we were there on the floor in the, uh, the theater and we lost to the, to Jon Stewart's last year of the daily uh, show. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they won everything across the board and, uh, you know, a a legend. Yeah. And so, but we were there and then, so seasons three, four, five. Yeah. The last, Three Emmys. We we won. Yes, uh, which was so exciting. Yes, and it's like so thrilling to be. It it is truly an honor just to be nominated. Like when we were sitting there, I was like, "Oh yeah, that's why people say that because it is." (laughs) Uh, And then winning was just like so much more than I ever expected, or so much different than I ever expected. Well, it's
0: cool because on the main, just to set the scene for listeners though, just. I don't mean to interrupt, but I think it's just to set the scene. In the years when the writing category is presented on the main telecast, there is at the Kodak, it's the Kodak downtown, whatever it's the down Microsoft now they've changed. Yeah. Oh, okay. But that, no, I think it is Microsoft now. It was, used to be the Kodak, whatever.
1: Um, Rest in peace, Kodak. Yeah.
0: (laughs) No, the Kodak was where the Oscars, I think, were. Oh,
1: I think you might be right. So
0: it was like, whatever, downtown, the big arena. They have generally two tiers, I think. Yeah. And a lot of the late night guys hosts bring in their writing staffs. Yeah. And you just hear these
1: cheer like very so, it's like in a like at a pep rally. So this I think the second time we went, yeah. they brought the whole not just the writing staff oh, the whole staff wow. so it was like 50 people up in the balcony yeah. just going not berserk yeah which was so sweet and affirmative and and we i was up there too i think yeah, yeah. because we had won at the creative arts ceremony the week before and we'd gone back to like support the yes, show yeah and and so john and tim and liz and i think diane were on stage and it was so it was so exciting and it, it's like well, I, last
0: week tonight dominates at the people, they, you know, they, you, they've
1: won. I mean, they won everything since Stuart, everything. Yeah. And they, we, I mean, I was, I'm out here now. I'm in Los Angeles now because I was working on the, um, TCA awards hosting bits with Jesus and Marrow yeah. And, you know, they were hosting and, and Oliver won and they had some very funny riffing about like, but oh, it's interesting.
0: Cause here. Oliver, it frustrates me because I want to, I want to, Get to hear more from him just as a out in the world, but he doesn't, he won't
1: campaign at all. No, he's very reserved. And I think he, I think, and this is me projecting a little bit is like, I think he likes to let the work speak for itself. And he's like impeccably talented and rigorous. And their staff is so talented and hardworking. And like, you know, they work. Every weekend that there's a show, they work Saturday and Sunday to make the show happen. So it's like a really incredibly dedicated and talented group of people across the board. And when you were, so you've just left in the last year to go mm-hmm. over to Deezer
0: Zamero, but for those, what is it, five, six years that you were there? there are five years. As you joined the writing staff, just take us through like your average week and just what each like as a individual writer on the writing staff, Mm -hmm. is there a writer's room? Are you each expected to deliver a different segment or is everybody pitching for every segment?
1: So the kind of broad strokes, because it's a little different week to week depending on what you're working on, there's kind of a few different things you could be doing. You could be doing the shorter stories for the top of the show, you know, the, the short, more immediately topical stuff or like sometimes a little lighter. And those you kind of do... It's it, you pitch on news stories, you get assigned to it, you write it in about a day. That's like one thing that takes up part of the week. Another thing is working on the long stories. That's like kind of a four week long process from the initial materials, the the story being kind of chosen, the materials being called, research and footage being cemented, writer meetings, outlines, drafts. That's like another thing where it's like kind of you're working on this team with a research producer and a footage segment producer that works with footage and John and Tim are overseeing and like one or two other writers, but it's a lot of solitary work. You go either work from home or into your office and like work for two days on this outline or a script. And then the, we, um, if you're not off doing that over the weekend, like Friday, all day, like Friday afternoon, usually all day Saturday. And then Sunday morning, you are just punching up, like adding jokes, pitching jokes. So you're in this writer's room and you get setups based on research or based on footage. And you just have to like hammer out joke pitches for those. And that's like Saturday all day gets to be like kind of you go kind of stir crazy in this like windowless writer's room with whatever, six to eight, six to nine other writers just kind of like how about this? (laughs) And so it's very, you guys taped on Monday on Sunday. They tape Sunday
0: Sunday nights. Yeah. So it's a once a week show where it's a half hour. hour. Yeah. And can you share the, let's say the two or three
1: things that you were proudest of during your, your Oliver years? Um, There are a couple things that, that I really love working on and all the pieces were, are such a team effort that like, I can't take credit, but I can take pride in having worked on part of this team. So we did a piece about transgender rights focused on the like bathroom bills that had been going, that had been kind of flaring up yeah. and still are. And I think it kind of, I felt really good about like taking on this issue or for a group of people that like when discussed in comedy had so often been a punchline and doing a really like compassionate, Piece of comedy ar- around that identity, and, and obviously, like there are amazing transgender and and gender nonconforming comedians working and making their own work. That it, it's important to recognize that it's not just like cisgender, straight, white men presenting that, but like I think it's really uh, it was I really liked working on that. It just felt like a, a very like compassionate piece, like I said before, and then we did there was a a thing about immigration courts that we did last year. And it was so bleak because the immigration system is so ruthless. And even when it's not at the levels of like violence and, and cruelty that it is now, it's, it's still not done gently and thoughtfully and with compassion to all the people that need it. But we, so the footage and the story itself is so bleak and, but we there was like a piece at the end that was like a trailer for a fake TV show about kids in court because there was there was a piece of audio of a little kid representing themselves, two year old or a three year old representing themselves in immigration court. And so it was a bunch of kids in a courtroom and their lawyer was uh, John Benjamin, who's just so funny. And so there were so many like they he riffed a lot with the kids and their and it just like it was so funny and it was like a way to illustrate this point and kind of like allow for that. We're explaining this horror. Yeah. But without sending people to bed being like, it's fuck. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I think that was like always a consideration that people don't like turn off the show and right. just go like, well, <laughs> I'm going to turn off the oven turn on the oven. Don't wait up, honey.
0: Um <laughs> So, yeah. So, you guys said so many great—I mean, I I always think back to the um FIFA. And yeah. And some of those were just— really, Those are really
1: great. But so John as a boss, though— He rules. He's great. Yeah. Yeah, he's just, like—he's so smart and hardworking and, like, really sets a tone of, like, we're going to do this and we're going to get it right and we're going to work hard to, like, do the best we can. And I, I really— Learned so much from him and like I know you as a as a person who writes about and interviews people in in, in this space I, where had mentioned that he doesn't do a lot of yeah. press stuff there is a way in which that is like instructional the way he picks and chooses and not having to jump at every opportunity right. like and being mindful of like who you want to talk to yeah. and I don't mean that with any animosity towards you and and journalists who yeah. many of whom and critics who I yeah admire and, and enjoy their work greatly but like there is something about like oh i don't want to I, I, this doesn't serve the work this this peripheral thing doesn't right. serve the work or this does serve the work so i will do it like they put out the marlon bundo children's yes, book that yes. jill twist had written for the show and john and all the money was for charity so yeah. john did like he came out here and like did ellen to promote right. it and it's like that's so nice that he like they did this thing on the show and he like really put his back into making making sure people knew about it and, yeah. and would buy it. And the money would would go to a couple of charity. I think yeah, the Trevor yeah. Project is one.
0: No, I definitely I really hugely respect him. It's more of a uh, coming from a place of being a completionist where it's like at this point on this podcast and I'm looking at our producer who. Knows we have like a wish list, and we've been through every single late night host oh, who wow. we care about, except and including like from my childhood. So we've had Leno, we've had Letterman, oh, wow. we've had all the current guys. But I just dream of you know one day we'll hopefully
1: be able to convince him yeah, to do Yeah, he's it, great, and it's so fun too to see him do stuff outside of the show because he's so funny. Yeah, yeah. Like his oh, his, his um, comedians and cars was great. His comedians and cars was yeah. great. Yeah. Like his relationship, watching him play like low status around seinfeld and just kind of be like oh all right here we are (laughs) it was so funny and so fun i'm like he's great when he goes on seth meyers his panel is so funny and all the other shows but like i I think the last one i saw him was seth
0: it's nice when they when they have these kind of crossovers that in the era of the late night wars couldn't have had like i I was just looking at some clips yesterday kimmel doing Corden and all this like this wouldn't have happened years ago yeah
1: it's nice it's nice when that when it Crosses over in a fun way. Yes, because Jesus and, and Marrow are also like oh, incredible yeah. at doing other shows. Like yes. their their panel is like great because they did Seth to promote our season premiere, I yeah. think, and they just like knocked it out of the park. Well, They're so they funny. Love,
0: like people, yes, yeah, Seth. I remember like really seems to dig them, and yeah, and Fallon's and they, done they, them. And, they've been and, yeah. great on
1: Fallon yeah. too. Yeah. yeah.
0: So all right, moving closer to the present here as we move along here, twenty sixteen. Was interesting personally, and then big picture for you. 2016, you put out your second album, mm-hmm. Physical Whisper, and this was, a, I think, a larger scale thing than certainly the first. Yeah, more I,
1: awareness. I think, yeah, I think it got a little press because I had it, it was better, first of all, and it was, and I had kind of, I was more of a a known commodity at that point, so people were a little more interested, which is always very flattering. And I think that's tied to that was your late night debut on conan yeah i did conan which was so fun he's so funny too like just really like wonderful to meet him like i was in the room just being like this guy wrote the monorail episode of the simpsons like what's (laughs) what's cooler than that and he was so funny and so disarming because i always feel like when someone when someone like needles you in just the right way it it's almost better than them being like, is there anything get you? Is everything okay? Because they, it's like, oh, you belong here. You can hang. We are like having a collegial, like, obviously I'm not peers with Conan O'Brien, but like it said you can hang. So like I taped my set and he was, we, he came over and we shook hands and he said, he was very kind and was like, come over and sit on the the couch and we'll wave goodnight. So I'm sitting on the couch and we, we, he's like, uh, thanks to our guests. Um, goodnight. And we wave. And he turns to me and goes, you know, I mean, we can't use any of that. And and I go, oh, I wouldn't dream of it. And Yeah, we're just going to run an old episode of Get Smart. And it made me laugh so hard. And I, like, pretended to be really anguished. And my manager was sitting, like, or was standing over in the wings and saw me, like, fully, like, pantomime, like, grief and anguish. And she was was like, what could have possibly happened there? Uh, But it was, like, it was a real joy. So, like, that and the album. And then that was when... That, later that year was when we won the first Emmy for last week I think right 2016 no, I think you yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. 16 17 18. yeah so that was
0: a good 16. year until <laughs> Donald Trump got elected oh, yeah which I just wanted to ask you one thing about that I'm not sure to harp on that but like for comedic purposes yeah not in any other way but just comedic purposes is Donald Trump funny I don't
1: think he's good to write comedy about it's it's or I don't think it's Fun to write comedy about him. And and of all the problems with Donald Trump's administration and the government under Trump and like the kind of the, the nastiness and violence that he inspires, uh, flustered comedy writer is the lo- absolute lowest problem on the totem pole right. um, or on whatever uh, more culturally sensitive references. I guess that, that feels like maybe I'm a being appropriative, but like the lowest problem on the list of problems. Yes. And but. I don't, I think there was this idea that he's going to be good for comedy, which, like, which isn't in, in itself insulting because it's like, it's, he's so bad for the world right. that, um, that saying he's good for comedy is also, it's just like, well, let him burn. You you're like, let the world burn, um, because we have this guy to make fun of is like just such a, um, cynical premise but I don't even think that that holds because he's so um that he's so cruel and dumb and, and in the same ways over and over again relentlessly and there's no um it is so frustrating to have to think of new ways because you can't tell the same joke over and over again on tv yeah you like you but as a writer you can't tell the same joke on tv you can't write the same joke for tv but he is being the same racist right and you can't just rerun the previous week's joke even though it's like yep he still is uh like kind of relentlessly cruel to people of color and it's like so it's like it is not good and, and it's also not like the world was um perfect before it's not like well when Obama was president there was nothing to say was bad with the world it's not that it's just that this is so the unremitting um cruelty as premise and is like there's a darkness to it that like you can write into but it's not fun and it's not it doesn't lend itself to, like a plethora of takes other than like, this is very bad and sh- has to stop. Um, okay. So you had
0: so much success at last week tonight. You guys couldn't have been doing better. So I guess the two parter, how did you first hear about a, a job at thesis and marrow and why were
1: you interested? I had my, I it like came through, it was like a very show businessy thing. My agent was like, Hey, these guys are looking for someone. Um, would you be interested in talking with them? And I, I like their work so much and I think they're so funny that I thought, you know, well, why not take the meeting? Um, I had, I had been at last week tonight for five years. I had learned so much. I had, I felt like um, I really like cut my teeth there in terms of like writing specific writing for the medium of television. My joke writing is so much stronger having been there. Um, I just like read so much and watched so much documentary footage that like I'm a, Smarter person for having been there, and so. But I was like, you know, what? This is interesting. I like these guys. It's a. It is so different in vibe that I won't feel like you know. I, I would get offers occasionally, like, "Hey, we want to do the John Oliver of economics right yeah. or John the John Oliver show of science." And it just like wasn't that interesting to me to like chase the, um, the specter of like, well, he's doing it the best we'll just try to do his thing you know like people wanting to me to work on pilots just that Mm -hmm. that didn't that never went um but with these guys I was like oh this will be so interesting and different so I I met with them and we had like a really good vibe in the meeting and I got offered this job which was like I'm a I don't I'm a supervising producer in addition to being a writer which is like really cool and exciting and was like a nice promotion a, a to get. Up, yeah. yeah, and it's um I'm learning all different kinds of skills. I got really good at the things I was doing at last week tonight. I or I got good as good as I was going to get yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, right? And I could have, you know, kept kept improving at that, but also I wanted to So maybe I didn't get really good. I got good enough. Uh, But now I can... I'm learning these different skills that I I wasn't going to get at like just a writing position. So I'm helping to supervise edits of things i'm out in the field on shoots every once in a while I, I like i'm involved in kind of higher level meetings seeing a little more of like how decisions get made and, and having a little input so that was a really thrilling opportunity to get to be at the beginning of something again yeah. but also something that had been proven to work so well on television with their previous work with, with the show at viceland and yeah. even before that like because we should remind
0: people, this is them, move. you joined as they're moving to Showtime. Yes. They had never had writers before. Yes. And, uh, and the other big distinction, I guess, is that even though I don't think this was initially the plan, they have gone from one to two, two times a week. week. Is that a big, do you feel the difference? From, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: And I think we have to be a little more creative because two days a week, it's, one more day that they are unavailable to, like maybe shoot a sketch, mm-hmm. so the scheduling has to get a little more creative. The way we like make the show gets a little more creative, and I, I'm I'm like really proud of how the shift was handled. And they're so good that you you know you I I have said before you could just have the the opera camera operator that turns on the camera show up. And you'll get thirty minutes of usable television. Well, they, would do, they television. do that at
0: their tapings. They yeah. before you even start. Yeah. I thought
1: we were on when I sat in your I
0: thought they were they were recording, and this was just them just them sitting down. Yeah. yeah,
1: They're and they're like just so, um, they're so smart and funny and generative of new ideas and and they do the two shows a week plus the podcast, uh, Bodega oh, Boys. Ooh. It's like really in like unbelievable volume of comedy for them to create and, and and it's really fun to be a part of like writing and shaping and um just a few floors in the same building. From yeah, where were, that's right? true. I'm three floors up so my commute got th- uh four seconds in the elevator longer than it was that's before funny. um so it's been like really wonderful to to really to shift gears and work in a totally different comedic voice but like a sensibility where they also I think want to make comedy that that feels that that doesn't get people wrong in the way that I was talking about doing comedy that's like compassionate to people that are kicked around often uh in comedy but also that like does not hesitate to call bullshit when something's bullshit cuz I was
0: going to say like on the surface these two shows couldn't be much more different. You've yeah. got the urbane British humor of John Oliver here. You've got the, I, I guess urban,
1: uh, but, but also urbane. I think urban, there, yeah. there's like their Jesus and Merrill. I think are like, they're so they, I don't think they get enough credit for like how their almost magical breadth of reference points and, um, like this deep wellspring of knowledge from across like so many different realms of culture. Like there was a joke about, I believe the joke was about people yelling in a movie theater at any movie and narrow referenced the red balloon, which is like not, that's a reference that doesn't make it on a lot of shows. You know what I mean? Like, and that, that's like a deep art film reference yeah. that is like not designed, you know, if you want to, there, there are other movies that give you the idea of like, this is a prestige film that you wouldn't expect people to yell that's at. Just improvise. That's it's improvised that he just like, it sparked in his head in the moment when they were talking about this. And, and so I think that like, but, but it is like a, a, a one white British guy yeah. versus two uh, people of color or two men of color who grew up in the Bronx. Yeah. Just the comedic voices are, they're very different. The, the, slang is different the cadence is different but i think that it's like excuse me i think like the the like they all three of my you know recent bosses and current bosses have like incredibly fast comedy processors and like high standards and want to do things that are like sharp and um excuse me aren't like the what uh desus and Mero did hot ones when the show was about to premiere the the interview show where you eat spicy, uh, wings <laughs> and they, they were asked about like political correctness and comedy. And, and they, so I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to put words in our mouth. And the answer was essentially like, you don't do comedy that like, just like beats up on people that like, you know, they, that are already they're They're getting enough shit. Don't and punch down. Yeah. Or you're like, don't, yeah. Don't like, don't, bum people out like you don't don't want people listening to be like oh hey that's hurtful to me and it's like such a a clear-cut standard and it's like so wonderful to work for people and john is the same way that i think don't want unless the person watching is a real specifically a real asshole you know unless it's um unless it's donald trump or mick mulvaney or like (laughs) yeah chris brown or whoever (laughs) is watching you you don't want people watching to be like oh that hurts that feels hurtful to me in a way that like i my life is a punchline to them and and i think that's really like it's really nice to get to, to be mindful of that but i mean it's just quite an amazing thing that you can
0: as a as that one individual has excelled at both places which is uh just a a versatility that might not be expected from the if the audience members
1: knew who's behind the scenes it's very funny because sometimes they'll be introduced at stand-up shows like he writes for jesus and (laughs) marrow and it's like it's a very fun so because sometimes people are, are like Hmm? Did they that, screw that up. Yeah, yeah. and you can. I, there, there are rooms where I'll, I have to get on stage and be like, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> which again, it's not self-deprecating. It's like a, an awareness yeah, of the yeah, of, of the space. All right, last question sure. is this:
0: You have some interesting stuff that's heading right about now. Yeah. Aside from the final season that you were a part of last week tonight, again, you're nominated with yeah. that team for best writing of a variety series at the Emmys, which are coming up in September. Then there's a new album, Dancing on a Weeknight. This is your third. And then a new book called Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results. So I want to ask you if you can just tell us about what is going on now and if you can look to the future, um, what is the ultimate goal these days for somebody like yourself in comedy? Is it a Netflix stand-up special? Is it a uh, something to do with SNL, as for a lot of people it sure. once was, uh, or your own late-night chore? What is like the next sort of landmark that if you or the next um, thing in the future that you
1: you'd like to aspire towards so I'm really excited for the book launch coming out I don't mean to be too pluggy but like it's been kind of a two years two plus years in the making project and so like I'm trying to stay really in the moment with that Mm -hmm. and be like really excited about that even though it's you know the the writing of it was like done done even over the summer when I recorded the audiobook, we were making like little tweaks, yeah. but like after that I didn't touch it until, you know, from like mid June onward. So it's, it's both in the past and in the future. Yeah. And I, I am kind of like standing astride it, like just kind of, um, uh, waiting for the two to merge. And, and so I'm really psyched about that. And I, I, I like have worked really hard on it over a period of years, a bunch of, essays. a bunch of, it's, it's comedic personal essays. um, and so – and I, I, like, can't wait for that to be in the world. Um, so that's the next thing that I'm, like – that's the the, med- the immediate future. I would love to do an hour stand-up special. But even that, it, it's setting an ultimate goal as, like, this – a thing. Like, that is a goal for sure. But then, like, after you do that, it's like, well – I guess, what do I do next year? You know, and once when you shoot an hour for Netflix, HBO, Comedy Central, by the time it comes out and you're touring, it's like you need to have new jokes from there. So it's almost like um, when you do when you do a special, it's like it's a culmination, but it's also like a knocking it down and starting over because you need that next hour of material Um, and which I'm working on now just you are working on an hour? Yeah. I mean, how like, m-
0: how far into it are you?
1: I've got like 10 to 15. Okay. And so, so when I'm on the road, I bec- I have the liberty of, like, you know, sometimes people come out to see me because of my albums or, or working for shows or having read things that I've written. And I don't quite, I'm not quite at the point where I'm, I feel obligated to do like all new when I go back out on the road, especially if it's a place I haven't been in a long time. But, um, I'm so I'm like integrating the new material with some of the old stuff when I'm out on the road or not even that old usually just from the previous album or like maybe one preschool story because people still like that and I've been doing it this is like like embarrassing but like I've been doing it long enough at, at not being a household name that like the older my material is the less likely people have heard it so like my best. Five to seven minutes from my first yeah. album is like probably less familiar to audiences. It, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that, which is it's sweet because I don't talk that much about the preschool stuff now, but it was, I it was such a there's probably 20 minutes of it on my first album. Um, and I have one joke about it that I just did on Corden that was new, yeah. and then I do like five minutes of that old stuff. Um, so I'd love to do a special. I really am happy, like at my job learning new things and refining new skills and like i love working with Jesus and marrow i loved working with oliver i would love to um create something in the future for television or for film um down the line i like whenever people ask my goals i always say i want to do whatever i want all the time which is like oh i want to write a book so i can take six months and work on a book or i want to um I want to create a show so I can like work on that and pitch it and, and not feel the pressure of like, oh I got to get back in a writer's room right. or, or cause otherwise I can't pay rent. Right. Um, or like I, I do I want to, if I want to write a new hour of stand-up, I could devote more of my resources and time to that. But it's like currently I am so privileged and thrilled to get to do kind of all of those things at once. Mm-hmm. And, and it's still sort of overwhelming. And I'm sure at some point I will have to make some choices of like well my stand-up has to scale back because i'm really uh i i am trying to be a showrunner or something and you just can't go out at night or like um well i i have to or stand up you know stand up will get squeezed out because it's like well i'm in a writer's room and i'm working on a book um but i just like working on so many different kinds of things and i i'm really grateful for the way i've been able to kind of like self-direct my career in a way that six years ago, even we were talking about felt unfathomable to me. Like the idea of like having a job on a show interviewing for another job and going, well, if I don't like this, I can stay at my current job. And that's wonderful. And so it's just been like a really incredibly, fortunate and like gratifying last few years especially i
0: was gonna say you've packed it's 12 years since we
1: last saw I each know. other at brandeis yeah
0: we will see each other we've seen each other at emmy stuff which or whatever is so,
1: <laughs> that's so like berserk to me that to that's like oh well, that. yeah i see like a couple times a year at like a at, like television academy events the right. emmys and like peripheral parties right. and stuff which is so it's so thrilling guessed? yeah and yeah. so like it's it really feels unfathomable and I, I hate to sound like uh you know like i i, j- I just fell off some kind of turnip truck um <laughs> but I, I i think maintaining that gratitude and perspective is really important to me that i don't get jaded of like yeah i've i've done this why would i care about this it's like well it's really it's a it's a real privilege and an honor and, and uh and a joy it's
0: been exciting uh Thank you for taking the time to have me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at THR.com slash The Race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at the Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in